Good morning. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 18 and go through verse 27. That is going to be our text today. So every once in a while, I'm sure those of you who are parents, do you ever have that feeling like you missed the days when it was really obvious when your kids were lying to you? You know, before maybe they sort of knew how to put all the logical pieces together, like you might walk into a room, there'd be a broken lamp, there's only one kid in the room, and you know there's only been one kid in the room, that no one else has been in that room for the last hour and a half, and the last time you walked in, that lamp wasn't broken, and the kid says, it wasn't me. And you're like, well, I know that it was you. Literally, you know, unless the wind blew the thing over, it was you, right? Or maybe it's just because in those early days, even if it was like they had the logic figured out, they just couldn't hide it at all. It was just written on their faces when they would do something or say something, and you're just like, yeah, I know the second you say something, you can't hide it. I see it on your face, right? But then as you get older, as we progress through life, sometimes it gets harder and harder to tell when somebody's lying to you, doesn't it? You're like, I I don't know how to always discern, Uh, and here we'll leave behind our kids. It's not necessarily our kids, right? It could be anybody in the world, and we think, man, sometimes... People are selling me a false bill of goods or offering something that I, it's not true, but I don't know that it's not true and I don't have all the data points. I mean, with the speed of information and the, thing, the way things get handed down these days, doesn't it almost feel really hard sometimes to discern the truth? Yes, it can. And that's really what John is gonna get at in this section. If you've been with us, we've been talking about how do you have confidence? That's John's purpose. There are these opponents that he's writing about to these churches that he dearly loves, his spiritual children. He shared the gospel with them. They came to faith, and he just loves them dearly. And now there's some folks that are lying to them and deceiving them and leading them astray, and he doesn't want that to happen. And so he's writing to them about how they can have confidence instead of being misled. They can be confident that they're in Christ, that they know the truth. And so we've said that's really the theme of this whole book. It's the whole purpose for writing. If you're new with us, one of the things you should know is we just kind of work our way through books of the Bible as our regular habit on Sunday morning here so that we get the full counsel of God's word and try to understand it and apply it to our lives. And so what John is gonna say in our text today is he's going to give uh, the people he's writing to some indicators of how you can tell when someone's lying to you so that you can cling to the truth and stay in the truth. That's his goal here. He says, I want you to stay in the truth. In order to do that, you're gonna need to be able to recognize lies. And he's gonna give them three tools to help them recognize when someone and these opponents in particular Uh, are lying to them. And I'll just give them to you now and then we'll just make our way through them as we go through the sermon and we'll read the passage. You'll see them there, I think. So the first is he's gonna say you need to expect people to try to deceive you. You need to expect opposition and expect deceit. That's part of being prepared for it, helping reject lies and hold on to the truth is just know that that's gonna happen, right? When you know something's gonna happen, you expect it, you know how to prepare for it, right? And not in a way that becomes defensive or standoffish or closed off, but in a way that's helpful, right? The second thing he's going to say is he's going to say, you need to not imagine that the key to spiritual vitality and growth is to embrace new ideas and new doctrines. What you need to do is cling to and then apply the old truths of historic Christian faith that you've always had. So don't be misled. He's going to say, you need to cling to historic, orthodox, apostolic faith. I'll explain what I mean by all three of those terms as we come to it. But you need to apply those things. You need to live in those, the things you've known from the beginning. Don't let go of those. So cling to those. And then the third thing that he's gonna say to help you reject lies so you hold on to the truth 
is he's going to say, you need to be quickened by the Spirit of God within you so that he takes the Word of God in you and sets it on fire. The way I'll frame that is, is that doctrine, which we sometimes think of as maybe dry and dull. I hope you don't, but you might think of doctrine as like dry and dull, this unchanging, stalwart doctrine of the faith. He says the Spirit takes that and sets it on fire inside of you so that you love it and cherish it and, and are being led in how to live it. But we need not just doctrine, we need doctrine set on fire by the Spirit of God. And so those are the three things he's going to give us as we look at how to understand and differentiate between lies and the truth. And of course, the scriptures give us way more tools than that, but those are the three that are in our text today. So let's read it together, see if you see them there, and then we'll work our way through each one. So 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So as I said, the kind of, question that this text is begging, that it's inviting us to ask, is how do I recognize lies so that I hold to the truth? Uh, those two things are necessary in the life of a Christian. And again, he's trying to argue against some opponents that are misleading people he dearly loves. Just a reminder, when he calls them little children, that's not pejorative. He is calling them little children, like people that I love, like I would love my kids, right? I love you the way I would love my kids is kind of the way to think about that when he calls them little children. But let's work our way through now these three things that he offers by way of helping us identify things that are lies and hold on to the truth. And the first is to expect opposition and deceit. Now that might sound uh, highly pessimistic. It's in fact not, but it is realistic, yes? And so a couple of terms of, terms of phrase here that are important for us to understand uh, and you need to know what they mean is the first when he says, little children, it's the last hour. So that phrase in the scriptures, whenever you see the last hour referred to, it always means one of two things. The last hour is the broad term used in the Bible for the time from when Jesus came the first time to when he's gonna come the second time. 
That whole period is considered the last hour. So in that sense, we are living in the last hour, right? But sometimes the biblical authors will use the phrase the last hour to mean the very end of that period, when we're getting closer and closer to Jesus' return. So you might think of it as the last hour of the last hour, right? And so this whole period, now whether John means sort of broadly, hey, we are living in the last hour. We're living in the time in God's redemptive plan that falls after the first coming of his son where he died for our sins and rose again, but before he comes again to bring final judgment and restore the kingdom and bring the kingdom in all its fullness, we live in between those times, but in the scope of the whole plan, that's the last hour. It's the last period of that redemptive plan, right? Now, John here might mean, he seems to mean perhaps more like the last section of that last hour, the last hour of the last hour, as things get a little bit more intense. Now, with that, in every generation of Christian faith, brothers and sisters, saints are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Many have thought, I'm living in the last hour of the last hour. And as of yet, they've all been wrong. But somebody's gonna be right at one of these points. Now, the authors of Scripture never make a guess because Jesus was very clear, no one knows the time or the hour. But there are indicators Increasing opposition is one of those indicators, increasing opposition to the truth. So then that takes us to our second term that we need to understand when he talks about the Antichrist. Did you notice that term in there? That might be an intimidating term to you, okay? I'm not gonna give you the full rundown on a biblical theology of the Antichrist and identify whichever world leader you think it is, you know, from history. That was supposed to be a joke. You all took that very seriously. It makes me nervous. All right, here's what you need to understand about the Antichrist. It is an end time, it's a last hour of the last hour figure that the scriptures say will come. He'll have authority in the world, significant authority, and he will be marked by a couple things, by trying to deceive the church of Jesus, trying to lead them astray, by blasphemy, actually claiming to be God, right? And by also then seeking to harm the church, harm the people of God. So these are some of the themes of the work of the Antichrist, lying, deceit, harming, and trying to deceive the church, blasphemy, actually claiming to be God. So these are kind of the markers. If you want to do a little bit more, go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, Mark 13, Matthew 24, Revelation 12 and 13, uh, and you can see the, some of the biblical texts. Actually, 2 John verse 7 talks about the Antichrist. Now, here in this passage, when he says, and we know that it's the last hour because many antichrists have arisen. Let me just say, I don't recommend going to your neighbors and saying they are antichrists. But what I will say is what John is saying is his opponents, that what they're teaching and doing is so marked by the kind of stuff the antichrist, when he comes, will do, that he's saying they're like little antichrists. They're of the same, they're cut from the same cloth is essentially what he's saying and therefore, you can trust that they are deceiving you, trying to harm you, trying to lead you astray. You know about this end times figure, he's saying to his church, these churches. You know about him, and your, the opponents that are opposing me and trying to deceive you are essentially cut from the same cloth as that end times figure. That's what he means. Does that make sense? All right, so that's why he's saying many antichrists have arisen. He doesn't mean there's multiple, multiple, multiple world leader figures like this, he means that my opponents are like a representation of that in the here and now. 
So here's why that's important. For our purposes today, without going into all the details of all those other texts I just referenced, when I say expect opposition, here's why I say that. Because did you notice that he says, we know that it's the last hour because of the presence of all of these deceivers. In other words, what he's saying is, as we get closer to the end, towards the return of Jesus, we can expect opposition and deceit to increase. Now, here's what that means. A, a Christian worldview has always included a tension within it. And here's the tension, is that we do not buy in to a secular idea that through enlightenment and rationalism and reason and science and the advancement of technology and education, while all those things are great and good things, we do not believe the world is gonna be ushered into a utopian future through them. We do not believe the world is just gonna get better and better and better and better until it essentially is like a heaven on earth through human efforts and human means. Actually, the scriptures teach the opposite, that opposition to Jesus and his church will increase as we get closer to the end. Now, without going into the timeline of all those things, that's just a broad principle that has been part of Christian doctrine from the very beginning. Everybody follow me so far, yes? And so expecting that is part of a Christian worldview. The other side of that, though, is that we are not fatalistic, nor are we defeatists. We are not people who believe that God's purposes, that God is not on the move and that his purposes can't be accomplished in the world. Here's a great tension, right? We have this verse, which is teaching that, hey, opposition's gonna increase. That's normal, expect that. We also have texts like 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse two. Listen to this. Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 49, and he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. That's God speaking. And then Paul adds, like draws a conclusion from that. And he says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What Paul is saying is God is on the move now. Today, as Christians, we don't buy a utopian vision of an increasingly God-honoring world, but we also believe God is on the move and bringing salvation to people today. There is no better time to be a follower of Jesus than now. God puts you here now. Don't think, oh, I wish I had been here 40 years ago, 60 years ago, 80 years ago. Those were the good old days. One, the people who lived then didn't think they were the good old days then, okay? Two, God puts you here now for a reason. It's not an accident. Your place in the timeline of human history is intentional, and God is bringing salvation, saying today is the day of salvation. Now is the hour. Church, take up the joy of service to the king now. There's no better day for it. What a day to live in where the cultural opposition to faith in Jesus and the values of the church are not widely accepted because it brings clarity and it sanctifies us and it purifies us and it moves us out with power if we will have eyes to see it. There's no better time to be in service to the king. Don't shrink back and don't be afraid, but expect opposition and gladly welcome whatever the cost is that must be paid to serve the king. I hope you believe that there's no better time no better day, because God did not put you in the time where he has placed you on accident. I believe that with all my heart. And God is saying for many, today is the day of salvation. People are coming to faith in Jesus. And actually around the world in historic numbers. 
So the first thing then to remember is that expecting opposition means we don't hide ourselves away in Christian enclaves, thinking that our job is just to protect and guard, but it is to go out. But that expectation is really important. When I was in seminary, I had a great professor named Dr. Woodbridge. I love Dr. Woodbridge. He was a church historian. His family had been present in some really important moments in American church history, like Billy Graham spent time in his house, right? And so he would come to class and he would tell these amazing stories and we would just get wrapped up in them. And everybody in class was always like, this is amazing, this is awesome. But then someone who had taken the class before pulled me aside and warned me. He said, Trent, I know you like those lectures because his class is awesome. But when you take that test, you're gonna fail it if you don't read every word of every page that he assigns plus the footnotes. Because you're gonna get to the test and you're gonna think, oh, this is easy. I remember every story he told. It was so, I mean, like when somebody tells a good story, you remember it, right? You know, this is gonna be great. And you get in there and he asked about page 46, footnote number six. And you're like, look, okay, you might've been A students. I was not a footnote reader, okay? I was like, I'll read the main stuff. Right, in the early service, I said, how, all right, be honest, how many of you were footnote readers? Liars. No, I'm just kidding. You're, I'm sure you're telling the truth. All my Messiah, all my Messiah were like, oh yeah, yeah, we read the footnotes. I was like, hmm, hmm, I don't know about that. Having somebody tell me what to expect made all the difference in doing well on the test. And that's what John is doing here. He's saying, expect this. Not so that you're scared or that you hive yourself off, but know what to expect so that you're not thrown off by it, so that you're not confused, all right? Now, the second thing, so that's the first. Expect opposition, expect deceit. The second thing that he's gonna offer is don't depart from the historic Orthodox faith given by the apostles in the scriptures, in the Bible. So look at verse 19, I'll show you where we see this, and then we're gonna look at verse 22 through 25. So in verse 19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So in verse 19 there, he's teaching an important doctrine called the perseverance of the saints, which teaches us that all who, are, who have a saving faith will persevere in that faith to the end. So that for him to say, they've left us, they've left us, the church, they've left the faith, is an indicator that they never had a truly saving faith. Rather than saying, well, they, they had faith, they lost faith, they've relinquished faith, he says, if they had been of us, they would have stayed with us. Now, let me do a really quick marker here. For someone to leave your local church body, please do not say that they've left the faith because they left your church family. Okay, now, I know that you might kind of go, oh, yeah, every church in America just went through this with COVID. There was this reshuffling that happened where some people went, I need a new church home, right? That happened here. Some of you are here because of that reshuffling. Some, of, some folks left and went to other churches because of that. Most of the stories, when I talk to folks, it's not because people denied Jesus and left him. It's because they recognized that they, they needed a different approach to certain aspects. And while a lot of times that didn't get done very well, if I'm honest, okay, and some things got lobbed at churches that probably didn't need to be lobbed at them, what I'll say is this, at the end of the day, I truly believe and trust that God was reorganizing his church to make us more effective in mission. I mean, at the end of the day, I just have to trust that's what God is sovereignly up to. I didn't hear a lot of people going, I know that there's all this talk about deconstructing faith, and then I think in a younger generation, there definitely is that reality happening for many, but within, a, within the church, I think quite often it was less about deconstructing faith and more about just like, 
I take a different approach to politics or whatever it might be, you know, and I'm going to choose to worship in a church that I align with more on those things. And that's, that's not unbiblical and it's not ungodly, okay? So at the end of the day, please don't take this text and go, when John says they left us so they're not of us, do not say someone who leaves my church is no longer in the faith. That's, yes, we agreed? That's not very helpful, all right? So now, he says that in verse 19, and then follow down to verse 22, because essentially he's teaching us that idea that had they been of us, they would have stayed with us. He's saying they left the historic Orthodox faith, and that's where we see in verse 24. We'll look at verse 24. That's where we really see that. So in verse 24, he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So there's just in one verse when he's referring to the beginning, he's saying, what John is saying to these Christians is the truth about Jesus and who he is that you heard at the very beginning when you came to know him. In other words, what he's saying is this historic Orthodox faith that believers at this point, you know, early in the life of the church, right? Because Jesus has come, he's, he's not been gone that long. And he's saying, this is the truth that has been transmitted through the apostles, those who were eyewitnesses to the faith, to Jesus, his words and his deeds. They've passed this down. Stay in that. You don't need to leave behind the foundational truth that you've received in order to go into greater spirituality, which is very much still very common today. This idea that I'm a, my spiritual growth is gonna move me beyond the basics and into something that actually contradicts the basics. And what he's saying is, no, no, no. Stay in what you heard from the beginning. Abide, remain in what you heard from the beginning. Christian maturity is not about ascending into new doctrines. It's about getting better at applying the, the basic doctrines. It's about rooting yourself more deeply in those and seeing how they apply to every area of life. Doesn't mean the church throughout history hasn't contextualized the gospel at different times and different places in different ways to be more effective in transmitting that. But the doctrines remain the same. The transmission of that doctrine can contextualize two different places and times. Does that make sense? It's the very nature of doctrine that it doesn't change. Truth remains truth across all times and all people. And so that's what he's getting at when he's saying, stay in what you heard from the beginning. Now, when I say historic Orthodox faith, what I'm talking about is what the church in its foundations has agreed upon as the central tenets of the faith, okay? Now, we don't have time today to get into all the secondary issues that sometimes Christians disagree about and argue about over interpretations of scripture. Those are for other days. But when we see here John arguing, stay in what you heard from the beginning, he's gonna specifically focus in on what was heard about Jesus. That's the main concern here today. And then he's gonna say, stay in that historic Orthodox faith, faith that you heard from the beginning, and I include there that has apostolic authority because, as I alluded to this a moment ago, John, James, Peter, the apostles of the Lord Jesus were the eyewitnesses to all that he said and did, and so they were the authoritative ones transmitting what he said and what then was, they were sort of final arbiters on what was orthodox faith, what it meant to believe in Jesus? What were the central doctrines and tenets of the faith? 
those apostles are no longer with us. I cannot turn to Peter, James, and John and say, as an eyewitness of what Jesus said and did, what do you say about this subject? So what did they leave us so that we would have their apostolic authority still with us in order to understand what is true and what is false? Left us the scriptures. Now, if you wonder, if you've been coming here for a while, if you wonder why, like, why are they so, like, I, I know we talk about it a lot. Why are they so, like, what do the scriptures say? What do the scriptures say? What do the scriptures say? Why are they so dead set on expository preaching and trying to, every time we come together, explain the Bible and, and root ourselves in the Bible? Why, why, why are they so concerned about it? This is the answer to why. Because that's where the authority lies. The authority's not in a human opinion. It's not in a human preacher. The authority is in the scriptures because that is where the apostolic authority has been handed down to the church throughout the generation. So when I say that the tool to not be deceived, to not be lied to, but to stay in the truth is to root yourself in the historic, orthodox, apostolically authoritative faith carried forth in the scriptures, that's the key to not falling victim to deceit. Does that make sense? So that's what he's getting at. Um, and that's what he wants us to see. Now, let's turn. Oh, let me say one more thing there. And I forgot, team, sorry, I had some pictures, but I, I totally forgot to use them. So um, let me turn to this thought here. When we talk about this like historical authority of interpretation, one of the things I want you to get without trying to get too heady here is just this, is that uh, a distinction between the, the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church historically has been the weight that we place on historical interpretation. So within the Catholic Church, whatever the Pope has said historically, and it changes over time, which is, gets a little confusing, but uh, whatever the Pope has declared from, from his position of authority, not everything he says, but when he declares something from a place of authority, um, when, when he declares that, then whatever that tradition of interpretation is holds equal authority to the scripture which it is interpreting. That is a Catholic view of, in, of authority. A Protestant view, and very central to the Protestant Reformation, is the idea that we say what is known as sola scriptura. Where stands it written? The authority lies in the scripture and the scripture alone. So we don't hold the same view of, well, just because someone in the past said this is the interpretation of scripture, we can't depart or vary from that. We have good what we call uh, hermeneutical tools, right? And that just means tools of interpretation that we try to apply to scripture to get a consistent interpretation of what the scriptures mean. But what we're always after is what does the scripture mean? And sometimes people have made errors in interpreting the scripture, right? But here's what I'll say to all that. That doesn't mean within sort of the Protestant tradition that we don't value what has been taught over the long history of the life of the church. So that, as in our day and age, if you see people saying that certain scriptures mean things that no one has ever taught they mean, in 2,000 years, we should be very wary of that interpretation of scripture. To think that we've found an interpretation of scripture that allows us to press into certain uh, areas ethically that we find within ourselves a desire to do that are more culturally acceptable, perhaps, to imagine that we've found the key to interpreting scripture that no one has seen throughout the whole history of the church. Do you see the historical arrogance of that position? Do you see maybe the foolishness of it? So while we don't believe in the 
equal authority of historical interpretation, nor do we do not deny the value of looking at the way the church has interpreted scripture over history to inform the truth of what it means. But the scripture itself in its, you know, in its intent is where we go always for our authority. All right, if you checked out during that, just check back in now, okay? Everybody good? All right, good. So let's go then to the next thing I said specifically when we're talking about historical, orthodox, apostolic faith. Look at verse 22 and 23. I want, you to show, I want to show you, I don't know if there are two verses in Scripture more packed with rich doctrine than these two verses because he's gonna get into specifically who is Jesus? What do we say about Jesus and as the center of all of our faith? And so in verse 22 and verse 23, here's what he says. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the father and the son. No one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. All right, so he's pressing into this doctrine of who is Jesus in relation to God the Father, and it's probably because the opponents, and we don't know for sure, but they're probably teaching some version of a heresy that was, that was floating around during this time that taught things like uh, Jesus was a human person that at his baptism was inhabited by the spirit of the Son of God from heaven, then lived in the authority and the anointing of that spirit up until the cross because we wouldn't want the Son of God from heaven to die, so that Son of God's spirit departed from him at the cross, and he died merely a human. And if God resurrected him, then he resurrected him just as a human, as a way of affirming that he had been a servant of God's, which is a complete denial of everything the scriptures teach about the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. But there's some misteaching about the person of Jesus that is being corrected here. And let me show you, in these two verses, what rich like massive doctrines of the faith we find here. So you might not even recognize how many are here, but look, the doctrine of revelation is here. In other words, we would know nothing. Doctrine of revelation is simply this. We would know nothing about God unless he chose to reveal himself to us because created finite beings cannot know an uncreated infinite being unless that uncreated infinite being reveals himself to that created finite being. And God has done that in the person of Jesus. He's revealed himself in the world he created, but specifically here in the person of the Son. So much so that to deny the Son is to deny the Father. It's to not know the Father. So we have a doctrine of revelation that is taught here, which is hugely significant because we believe we only know God according to what he has revealed. Go back to scriptural authority. How do we know anything about God? It's not by my gut. It's by his revelation. And so I look for that revelation. We're taught the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus is God's son, that he is fully God and fully human, fully divine, such that rejecting him is rejecting God. These verses teach us the very nature of God in the flesh, the beautiful doctrine of the incarnation, which says God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He came to us in the person of Jesus Christ the doctrine of the incarnation. He teaches the doctrine of sin and atonement. Your sin is real and has a real cost that has to be paid, but that sin can be atoned for for all who confess Jesus. Do you see it? He's saying atonement is necessary. Sin is real. That's why he says to deny the son is to deny the father, but to confess the son 
is to have the Father. And then closely related to that doctrine of atonement and sin is the doctrine of salvation, that salvation is available to people. And not just that salvation is available, because if you confess the Son, you have it, but the way that salvation is available, not for your works, but by grace, through faith. That's why he says, he didn't say to work and obey the Son and do the things, keep the commands. He doesn't say that. That's how you then know the Father. What does he say? If you confess the Son, you have the Father. To confess is to say, I believe. It's the same thing Jesus said when he says, what's the work of God? And he says, the work of God is that you believe in him whom he has sent. So the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith is taught here, and the availability of salvation is taught here. And then lastly, there's a denial of universalism, which is central to the tenets of our faith here. And universalism typically comes in one of two forms. The first form of universalism is basically believe whatever you want, but believe it very sincerely. And if you do that, then that sincerity will be enough for God, and therefore everyone will be made right with God in the end. That's a form of universalism which says everybody will be okay in the end, right? But what does he say? If you deny the Son, you have denied the Father. Do you see how that's a rejection of universalism? Do we see it? Yes? But then he goes on, because the other package that universalism sometimes comes in, you might call Christian universalism. It's not Christian, but you might call it Christian universalism. Because it's the idea that the cross of Jesus is sufficient payment for everybody regardless of whether they believe or not. It's why someone like, now this is probably a dated reference at this point, but someone like Rob Bell, when he says love wins, that's what he means by it. That's a very lovely sentiment to say love wins. But when Rob says that, what he means is in the end, everyone will be covered by the cross whether or not they believe or don't believe. That's, that's essentially that saving grace is gonna be imparted to everybody so that they'll be made right with God through the work of Jesus, but they don't have to believe it in order to receive it. But verses like this, that's a lovely idea because we want people to be saved, yes? Of course we do. But we just have to ask, is that what the scriptures teach? Or have we made that up? And here we see, if you deny the son, you have denied the father. If you confess the son, then you have the father. So a denial of universalism. Do you see the massive, do you, did you see all those doctrines in those two verses? It's massive, weighty, meaty, rich doctrine that is given to us here. So a couple things, and I alluded to this, so I won't, I won't linger on this too long, but don't be fooled into thinking you need a new revelation for spiritual enlightenment. John is saying here something like what Jude says in his letter in Jude chapter one, verse three. I want you to listen to this and see if, you don't, if it doesn't feel like it absolutely sounds like our time in which we live. He says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, in other words, he wanted to talk to them about their connection through Jesus and how amazing it, this salvation that we have in him was. That's what he wanted to do. But he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, what did he just say? Contend, stand up for, represent, speak out a faith that has not changed. It was delivered once for all to the saints. Does that sound like a changing set of doctrines? 
No, he's saying, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And then he gives us a hint as to what might lead people away from that historical, orthodox, authoritative doctrine. Because he says next, verse four, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying there? There's a need for me, he's saying, to instruct you to contend for the faith. Historic, rich, ancient faith. Stay in it. Don't depart from it. And the reason I need to do that is because the sensual desires of people are leading them into a denial of it. This desire to, to fuel the flame of whatever these internal sensual desires are leads to a denial of Jesus. It's been this way generation after generation after generation, and we're really no different. Would you say that sensuality might be leading people astray from Jesus in our day? Now listen, I, as I thought about this, and then we're gonna go to the work of the Spirit here. As I thought about this, I really have two I was praying and thinking about you and thinking about just kind of two groups and I don't know if you would, you may find that you fall into one of these. Um, maybe you won't feel that, but I have in mind both the reality that some of you may be in that place where to talk about like cling to the truth, this ancient historic truth almost feels like a, like a so at odds with where the culture is and there's this longing to not sort of have to stand apart from the culture. And often that comes about because someone we love and have a relationship with, a child, a friend, like is moving in that direction and we, we just can't possibly imagine ourselves causing fracture in that relationship by holding to historic truth and we know it will, be ca- it will cause that. And so we, we end up going, well, I, I want this relationship to be okay more than I want to hold to this. And I have you in mind because I'm just thinking to remind you today that because historic faithful doctrine doesn't change, clinging to it is, to not cling to it is not to love that person. You have nothing to offer them if you change to be like the world. There's nothing, to, there's nothing that can save, there's nothing that can give purpose and meaning in life but the historic, apostolic, authoritative faith. That's, so it's not that we're just kind of these stodgy old people saying, we just like it better the way it was in our day. We just wanna hold on to the past and no, what we're, what we're saying is like there is this transmission of truth that has gone down through the generations and if we don't cling to it, there's nothing, there's nothing that can save left. And so that's what, we're, that's what we're suggesting. Now, the other side of that is that, you know, in a time, the other group that I kind of have in mind is those of you who might just feel like, man, the culture feels so against us right now that I just want to sort of say, um, I'm gonna cling to the truth and batten down the hatches and create a Christian citadel and, and just live my whole life in a Christian enclave and just pull away from everything because it just feels dangerous out there. 
And what I would say to you is the result of that is no different than the result of letting go of truth. At the end of the day, nobody gets the truth that needs it. When the church walls itself up and just says, look at me, I'm protecting the truth. Aren't I doing a great job? And we never share the truth. People who need the truth are left without it in the same way that if we deny the truth. At the end of the day, they both end up in the same place. Do you see that? I don't, I wouldn't suggest that Jesus would be pleased with either of those things. The God who came in the flesh to die so that people might be reconciled to God seems like a God who is constantly sending out, not turning in. Who is constantly saying, take the truth out, go. So friends, I would just say, don't, look, here's the thing. You can preach these kinds of sermons and you can get so many attaboys and pass them like, yeah, stand up for truth. Yeah, yes, absolutely, but share the truth too. And be full of the love that that truth is meant to impart into your heart for those. Here's the thing. You came in the rain today. Was it still raining out there? Love that you came in the rain. Good job. Did you know that every time it rains, you're supposed to think, I'm supposed to love my enemies? Did you know that the rain is a reminder of the mercy of God? Rain in the days of Noah, God judged the earth through rain. And he flooded it for all its wickedness. But then when he saved Noah... What did he say? I will never flood the earth again. I'll never bring judgment again this way. So that now every time it rains, what do we know? It's going to stop. It's not gonna keep going. And every time the rain stops, I'm reminded God is merciful. God, and the rainbow comes, that's right. God is merciful. When it rains, you're reminded of the mercy of God. But more than that, because Jesus comes and he even adds on. You, didn't even, you may not even recognize this. Matthew chapter five, verse 44 and 45. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, love your enemies so that you'll be like your father who is in heaven. He's the one who causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, and he's the one who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So when it rains, we both know that God's mercy is big and that God is sending that rain to those who love him and those who do not, who are in absolute rebellion against him as a reminder of his saving mercy that is available to them. And I, as a believer, when it rains, am, have a visible, visceral reminder when I walk in here and get all wet because it's raining, instead of being like, man, the rain, you know what I think to myself? Love your enemies. Love your enemies and be a son of your father who's in heaven. Be like him. What good is it to love those who love you? Anybody can do that. But I say to you, love your enemies. Love those, pray for those who persecute you so that you will be children of your father in heaven. And this is what he does. And the rain is our reminder. Because we're dummies and we need reminders like rain hitting us in the face. He's like, love your enemies, love your enemies. Because you're not gonna do it and neither am I unless he reminds us. All right, let's look to the third thing. The third thing here is the work of the Spirit, and I'm gonna cover this pretty quickly. Uh, so look with me at verse 20 and 21, and he says this. He says, but you have been anointed. Now he's just said that they, people have gone out. The opponents have gone out. And he says, but, but by contrast, that's what that but in verse 20 is about. But unlike those who left and weren't of us, but you have been anointed. And that word anointed is the word chrisma, which is very similar to, it's a derivative of the word for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so what he's talking about in that anointing 
that they've received is that they have received the Spirit of God. They have the Holy Spirit because they have come to faith in Christ. And so he says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, that's Jesus, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. All right, so what did he just say in verse 20 and 21? The reason he can say with confidence, the people who left in verse 19 didn't actually, weren't of us, is because he's saying if they had had the Spirit teaching and instructing them, they would have remained. He has this high degree of trust in the work of the Spirit in the presence of a believer, right? Like sometimes, like the reality is, any of us who are talking to anyone about the truth, you can't make anybody believe anything or do anything, agreed? You have to, you have to be constantly saying, I need the Spirit to work, I need the Spirit to work. And that's what he's saying, I trust because you've been anointed. You have the Spirit, every believer does. You have the Spirit and he is teaching you and instructing you and he says, I, I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth. In other words, I'm not writing to teach you something you don't already know. I'm writing to you simply to remind you of what you already know and the Spirit is already testifying to you. That's why I'm writing to you. Now then look, go down into verse 26 and 27. He kind of completes the argument here and he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing, there's the Spirit, that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. That's a big statement, especially when he's just been teaching them things, okay? You have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing, the Spirit, teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So again, he's saying, remain in this historic, orthodox, apostolic faith that the Spirit is teaching you. Now, this may seem really subjective, right? And you're like, oh, is he just saying, whatever the Spirit says, you know, you're good, but combine the reality that he is both instructing them, stay in the authoritative truth of the doctrine that's been handed down from the very beginning, and also, I trust the Spirit's going to keep reminding you of that and teaching you and instructing you how to do that. So he's not saying it's all subjective, whatever you sense the Spirit saying, that's gonna be good, right? But he knows the Spirit will never lead in opposition to the truth of God, conveyed in the scriptures. You can trust that. So here's what he's saying, I believe. He's saying, this historic truth that I'm telling you, stay in it. The Spirit's going to take that teaching that comes from the outside and sort of hits your head, if you will, and he's internally gonna take that doctrine, that truth, and he's gonna set it on fire inside of you. So that what, have you experienced this? When you hear truth conveyed, something in you says yes, and lights up, yes? You experience that and you go, that's truth. That's right. That's not because you're really wise. That's because the spirit in you is saying yes. It's because the spirit inside of you says, that's my truth. I'm the conveyor and the purveyor of that truth. And I'm inside of you. And I'm not gonna take that doctrine, which you might think of as dry and dull, a set of information about all this historical, you know, theological realities. He says, no, no, that's not dry and dull. I take that stuff and I turn it on fire inside of you so that it takes over every part of your life so that this doctrinal truth becomes something that you can't get enough of and you are excited and thrilled by because it's the truth of who God is and what he's done and there's nothing better than that. And it becomes more appealing and more uh, desirable to you than all the sensual pleasures of the world that Jude says is leading people astray. You don't just need doctrine, dry facts. You need doctrine set on fire by the Spirit inside of you. 
That's what he's saying the Spirit is doing in them. And that can be trusted because he's taking this truth that is conveyed to them and he's quickening them so that their reaction to it and their love for it has changed everything in them. And that's the work of the Spirit. That's what he's saying the Spirit does. So we want to reject lies and hold to the truth, yield to the work of the Spirit as he takes those beautiful doctrines of the faith and causes your passion and your love and your affection to grow for those. Never make the mistake of believing that passion and doctrine are opposed to one another. True passion it comes from true doctrine. And those two things come together in such a beautiful way in the life of a follower of Jesus that it sends you out in power and authority and teaches you how to be humble and love your enemy so you can be like God. Love your neighbor, love your brother, love your sister. Gives you wisdom and fills you with hope and joy so that you both guard the truth and share the truth. So you don't make the error of leaving behind the truth in the name of love or fitting in or whatever it may be, but you don't make the, the equal mistake of saying, I'm just gonna wall myself up over here and just be happy to have the truth myself and be orthodox myself and have like these things that, yes, I'm doctrinally accurate and good enough for me. But to convey it and share it, which by the way, you recognize sharing doctrine, sharing the faith, the historical faith, it's part of guarding it, right? You see that. That's why we're so dead set on the next generation around here all the time. Because we're all gonna be gone like that. And we're not doing a very good job guarding the faith if we don't transmit it from one generation to the next. There will be no one left if we don't convey it forward. So sharing doctrine is part of guarding it. Sharing faith is part of guarding it. All right, I hope that's helpful. Is that helpful? Okay, awesome. Let's pray and then let's just sing to the Lord. Can we do that? Right, go ahead and stand with me. Team, come on up. Give them a second to get up here. But let's just praise God. Father, your scriptures are so weighty. And um, yeah, I have this feeling that, you know, maybe today I was just a little too wordy, but I pray, Lord, that you would just simplify that for all of our minds so that the truth of your scriptures comes to bear. I, I just don't wanna get in the way of that. So Lord, take the truth of your word, apply it to us so that we would... Yeah, sense the Spirit's work in us and that we'd respond faithfully to the Spirit's call upon us to go into the world and to serve you and to, just to be filled with joy that we get that privilege and that it is a sweet time to get to do that. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd have your way with us, each one of us. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are in a hard spot right now, in a hurting place and need comfort, give them comfort. For those who need to be prodded a little bit forward, would you in gentleness prod them forward? For those who need to be convicted of sin and, and move towards righteousness, would you do that? So we open our hands to you and we say we want whatever is necessary so that you get glory from our lives. We pray it in the name of Jesus, amen.